0: My name is Vida, Sister Prince, and today is May 12, 1992, and I am interviewing Mr. Edwin B. Meissner, Jr., Bud, and Harold Burgess for the Oral History Project concerning World War II for the Missouri Historical Society. We are going to discuss the St. Louis Car Company, a brief description of its history, the production conversion during the war, World War II, and how it functioned, changing back to peacetime. God, could you give me a, um, a, a brief history of the company, please?
1: Well, I'll do the best I can. St. Car Company was formed in 1887, and uh, my father came from Milwaukee in 1911. Uh, at which time Mr. John I. Beggs had bought control of the company from the Kobish family that owned and operated it uh, prior to that time. It was uh, bankrupt and in terrible rundown condition. The day the newspapers announced that Mr. John I. Beggs had bought control, 187 suits were filed for past due accounts. So they thought, well, at somebody's got some money and uh, Maybe we can collect our bills. Um, he, my father had gone to work for Mr. Beggs at the age of, uh, I think it was 14, as an office boy. Actually, a messenger boy. He sat out in front of his office with a uniform and ran messages in Milwaukee. But by the time 1911 had rolled around, he was uh, he had the title of chief clerk, which was kind of a cross between an office manager and a purchasing agent and a few other things, and he was in one of Mr. Beggs' trusted employees. So the way he told the story, Mr. Beggs came to him one day and said, Edwin, I want you to meet me in St. Louis tomorrow. And I'll pick you up in front of the Jefferson Hotel uh, with the family car, because he, he was related to the uh, family down here that had an interest in St. Louis car. And so my father went home and packed a couple of shirts and told his mother he was going to St. Louis. and. And the next morning, Mr. Beggs picked him up, and they started to drive, and my father said, well, Mr. Beggs, what are we doing here today? And Mr. Beggs said, well, I'm taking over the St. Louis car company. And he said, well, what am I doing here? He said, well, you're going to run it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And to make a long story longer, uh, my father came to St. Louis with a new bride, my mother. Uh, they were married in 1911. and. Here and ran St. Louis car from that day until he died in 1956. He finally acquired control in 1925 by buying stock. Uh, that's another long story. But uh, he bought control from Mr. Beggs, uh, and it was all financed with bonds and preferred stock, and they had owned the common, which had no value. But um, at least he had control of the company. In about 19, late 1949 or 1950, my father and I were contacted by some people in New York, and to make a long story short, we ended up negotiating a a contract with the Marquis Foundation for the benefit of Lafayette College, and without going into all the details, which is a story in itself, which by the way was written up in uh, Fortune magazine, uh, Lafayette College own control and we owned it we operated it, the uh, company for Lafayette uh, they didn't pay for it we paid for it by earning money paying dividends and the dividends then were used to pay off the stockholders so in effect Lafayette College uh, bought the company with the company's own money and uh, actually the Marquis Foundation really put up $500 to form a corporation but that's a whole story in itself has little but it's uh, been written up uh, in not only in, uh, in the uh, Fortune magazine of 1960, it was September issue, 1960, but also written in um, uh, Prentice Hall as a rather unique uh, financing arrangement, uh, which was quite interesting in and of itself, but that, that would use up all your tape.
0: Okay. <laughs> um.
1: Now after that, uh, w- my father and I ran the company for the Benedict of Lafayette College uh, until he died in 1956, and con- I continued, to, then I became president general manager and ran it uh, until I left. But uh, the college, at one point in time, decided they wanted, would you like a
2: pillow?
1: Uh, that they wanted to in effect cash in on their investment and uh, made a couple of efforts to uh, sell the company behind my back and uh, we were able to forestall that they did it once behind my father was still alive we talked them out of that because it was sort of stupid and then uh, they did it again in 1957 at which time, once again, I'll be overly brief but Uh, I ended up exercising my option to buy it back and and, uh, resold it simultaneously to some people in Chicago who defaulted. Then I started all over again with the the, uh, Mergesons from Dallas, Texas. And and the Mergesons owned it then from 1957 till 1960... I thought it was June 28, 1962. I guess it was 1962. Uh, And uh, then they ended up selling the car building assets. We had many other assets at that time. They got us into the uh, gold bullion business, oil and gas business, and a few other businesses they were interested in. And Harold Burgess, who's sitting here, is is the only guy who knew what was going on because he kept the books. But they were uh, using us as kind of a cash bank uh, and uh, took all of our money and used it for other purposes. But they ended up selling the uh, car-building assets to General Steel Industries, and uh, that lasted until we liquidated the company in 1973, uh, and that was really my last job with General Steel, was to liquidate the casting division and the car division. At One time I swore in writing I'd never do that, but when the time came to do it, there wasn't anybody else around to do it, so I did it. Mm-hmm. But that's an overly brief synopsis of... Uh, where we were and various ownerships and,
0: I understand, and that to try
1: and go into the details would take uh, mm-hmm. days.
0: But thank you very much. Um, tell me when you came in, and I, I know you came in as a young I started
1: young to work uh, my junior year in high school when I was about 15 years old uh, every summer and I worked all my summers through college. I got out of college in 1940 and joined the company full-time in, I guess, June of 1940. Uh, in February of 1941, uh, I had registered for the draft and had a relatively low number, low number, so my father and I decided the smart thing to do as a volunteer to get that one year over with and then get back to work, because he, he liked having me there because I was cheap help, and he didn't have to pay me very much. I was living at home, and, uh, it, it worked out fine, the only thing was that, I joined the Army in February of 41, and we had Pearl Harbor in December, and I didn't get back. I didn't get out of the Army fully until February of 46, uh, uh, so was, I was gone for five years. Uh, Where I, were you, by? I got home frequently, but uh, I was in the Army. I started at the Buck Private in Camp Robinson, me, Camp Robinson Arkansas, 138th Infantry. Went out to California a week after Pearl Harbor to defend the United States from the Japanese invasion. Then, since uh, I found out I wasn't going to get out of service, I applied for OCS, uh, Officer Candidate School, and I ended up going to Fort Benning, Georgia in February of 42, and after 13, no, yeah, about 13 weeks, I got to be a second lieutenant, and then I was stationed at uh, Fort McClellan, Alabama, for 14 months training black troops, then I joined the cadre of the 13th Airborne Division at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, helped form the 13th Airborne Division, and became a gliderman. Then we moved to Camp McCall, North Carolina, where I became a paratrooper. And then I went overseas with the 13th Airborne. Well, uh, we were Eisenhower's secret weapon. We were so secret that uh, we were never committed, thank goodness, because the ground forces were moving ahead so fast mm-hmm. they didn't need paratroopers. And then we were rushed back to the United States, in a, since we had not been committed to combat in, in Europe, so that we could uh, have the uh, airborne invasion of Japan. And. Uh, that probably where I would have ended up if it hadn't been that Truman dropped the atomic bomb and made that trip unnecessary. So I finally got out in about. I finally got home in about uh, November, I think it was of, of 1945, and was actually separated from the service in February '46.
0: And it's uh, you told me on the phone that you were very much aware, even though you were not here except on visits, you knew what was happening.
1: Well, my ever since I started to work at the company, even with four years of college and five years in the Army. My father sent me copies of all his correspondence, and uh, so I knew what was going on, <laughs> and one time I even was in New York in uniform and paid a business call on our our uh, Russian uh, customer, Amtorg, to report on the progress of the uh, uh, mobile power plants we were building, because it was wartime and it was very difficult to travel, but I was in New York, so Dad sent me all the information. And I went in and told him about it in full Army uniform. <laughs> Instead of sending some executive from St. Louis when you couldn't get airline tickets or you uh-huh. couldn't get train tickets or anything else, The travel was rationed. So I was able to pinch hit for him occasionally, even in uniform.
0: Did you like getting the information that you got? I loved way? it.
1: I felt like I was part of the firm when I wasn't even there. Oh, well, good.
0: It must have been very what was it like to see well, I'll hold that question because tell me now what St. Louis Car Company made before the war.
1: Well, before the war, uh, going back to another war, we were a big military contractor in World War I, so we had a long history of building military equipment. I won't go into the history of what we did in World War I, but uh, before I left, uh the service in February 40, We had tried to get military contracts in 1940, but never successfully. I remember working on bids for all kinds of strange things, like horse-drawn ambulances and ho- all kinds of stuff that was really uh, replicas of World War I equipment, but we hadn't landed any contracts, but uh, we were primarily building streetcars and trolley coaches uh, for the uh, urban mass transit industry and some railroad equipment as well. But you got to remember, this was the late 30s, and the 30s was a time of tremendous depression. So we were very depressed, damn near broke, uh, and uh, we were really struggling just to keep our head above water. So uh, those were very tough times, and we worked hard to get orders, but the orders were hard to get in those days, because everybody was hungry, and, there, and the, we were not in the war yet, so there was not a great deal of military procurement.
0: Were there beginning to be shortages of any kind because uh, there was fighting in the in the Far East with the Japanese? Yeah. And I
1: don't recall any particular material shortages uh, back in '40 and '41, but they certainly came later on. Everything was rationed. Yeah, you know, but, but,
0: but before we got into it, you didn't. Not
1: not that. particularly that I can recall.
0: Harold, <laughs> would you would you tell about? yourself, uh, just briefly to
3: give an idea of the company. I, um, I started working for St. Louis Car first time in uh, 1936, then I left uh, February 1938, went to Washington, worked for the Social Security and then the Securities and Exchange. The last time I came home, in '40, Mr. Meissner approached me, do we ever think about coming back to St. car And I said, constantly,
2: mm-hmm. come on
3: back. So I, I started working again on March 15, 1941. And I worked there until uh, December 1960. 69.
0: And and what did you do when you started and what I did was, you...
3: I was a male clerk, mm-hmm. M-A-L-E. That's what they had then. And then I advanced to auditor and uh, then advanced to assistant treasurer and then treasurer. Yeah. Right.
1: I you. thought we called you comptroller for a while too. Didn't i might didn't have you? been of auditor. And I never knew what that word meant, yeah. but we thought it sounded like a good title. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, all right. Um, now we'll begin with uh, with the um, uh, the war. Um, when what was the when you began? Did you did you go after the first contract? What, how was the war? How did it start for the St. Louis Car Company? Second World War.
1: We had a subsidiary known as St. Louis Aircraft Corporation that built airplanes for the military during World War I, and between World War I and World War II, uh, did some aircraft work for right field, wind wind direction finders and some uh, bomber trainer devices, and we did some experimental aircraft. We built a low-wing monoplane. We built a, uh, they called it an educational order, I think it was called, of uh, 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 primary trainer uh, biplanes. So we were constantly doing some aircraft work for them, and uh, then we entered a competition for the primary trainer, and finally we were awarded some airplanes to build uh, of a Fairchild design, uh, the PT-19s. succeeded with the PT-21s. Now, that's the aircraft side. On the car building side, we built uh, a number of uh, items. Turn that off a minute and, um, One of the interesting projects of St. Louis Aircraft Corporation was we built the first glider the uh, uh, Air, Air Corps in those days ever had But then we got switched out of the glider program into the primary training airplane because that was a more sophisticated Mm -hmm. uh, type of uh, uh, manufacturing that we were qualified for. And the glider program then was switched over to the Robinson Aircraft Corporation. They're the ones that built the CG4A that crashed at Lambert Field. Mm. We were the pioneers on that.
0: Wasn't there a Leister Kaufman?
1: Leska Kaplan, they were in that. The same, Guiders. Yeah, oh, I don't know whether they built finished ones or built parts, mm-hmm. but they were part of it too. If you're interested in uh, some of the work we did, uh, I can give it to you more or less in date order. The uh, in, I'm going, this is 1941 now. We built 38 ammunition, uh, ammunition cars for the uh, Engineering Corps. We built 32 ammunition car, then another order for the engineering corps. Then we got into amphibian tanks for the U.S. Navy, and here's an order for 30.
0: Is that the alligator or the the water buffalo? That's the
1: alligator, Mm -hmm. the LVT-2, known as the alligator tank. It was followed subsequently by the LVT-4, which was known as the water buffalo. Mm -hmm. But in this uh, listing, they're just referred to as amphibians, which they are. Uh, Then we had another order for 30 kitchen cars from the Transportation Corps.
0: Kitchen cars. Okay. These
1: are uh, cars that are uh, railroad cars equipped for uh, for serving meals to troop trains Mm -hmm. for the transportation of soldiers. So it was a a custom-built kitchen car. Designed for troop train use. Now,
0: yeah, is this in this country? Or? Oh yeah.
1: Okay. All in this country. Uh, later on, I was told that a lot of that equipment got shipped overseas during the Korean War, but that's that's another yeah, that's war. Another war. <laughs> so then we then we built uh, for the we got into this Treasury Department building. Uh, mobile power plants which were designed for export to Russia. That's another whole story. These were, when the Germans uh, attacked Russia and subsequently pulled out, they destroyed all the power plants. And many of these cities and towns had no electric power. The, for some reason, the United States Treasury Department placed an order with a Eastern Manufacturer, I can't remember who it was, to build mobile power plants. There was a diesel engine and a generator mounted on a railroad car. And they were going to export them to Russia, and they would be used to uh, in, a, in a mobile way to provide power to Russian cities. Well, the guy that had the contract was not performing. And at some point in time, I can't be precise, my father and Bill Kamen, were asked to come to Washington, or maybe they heard about the problem and went to Washington, and the contract was canceled from this existing uh, manufacturer and given to St. Louis car company to finish the contract. So there were already diesel engines on hand and generators, and to make a long story short, we took over this guy's contract and completed it and built I can't give you the exact number off the top of my head, but uh, I think close to a hundred or more of these mobile power plants. I remember there were three different sizes with different engines, different generators, and our our ultimate customer was really the Russian government. And they had what they called the Amtorg Trading Corporation in in New York City representing them, but the order really came from the United States Treasury Department, and it was financed by the United States uh, Treasury. So that was a, a big wartime uh, wartime job. Uh, then th- this was all 41 and 42. And then I find here in 1942 we had one order for 250 of the buffalo amphibians, another order for 260, 263. Another order for 790. Another order for 908. Now we're up to 1943. And here's an order for 80 power plants from the Treasury Department,
0: 1943. The
1: Russians again. Oh, well, all Russian, you yeah. know.
0: Uh, is it possible that um, there were other countries that could have used something like
1: that? I, I suppose so, but uh, Russia was our ally, and, the, and they're the ones that needed them. Mm-hmm. And the Treasury Department uh, furnished them. Interestingly enough, when the war ended, we were left with eight of them on hand. That uh, because we had a. Kind of a falling out with Russia at some point in time. We didn't we never. They never were delivered, so we stored them for years. I think we got even paid for storing them, didn't we? Help, yeah. yeah. not a hell of a lot, but we put them out in the yard. We paid you for storing
0: them. Government. Mm-hmm. Was, mm-hmm. The United States government. Yeah,
1: it was government property. And along comes a major drought in Mexico City, Mexico, and they had such a drought that they had a terrible power shortage because their hydroelectric plants wouldn't work. So the Mexican government got the United States government and they told us to ship these diesel, these eight of them, down to Mexico, the Mexico Light and Power Company. It's <laughs> complicated. So we shipped them down there. I think we rehabbed them before they went to make sure they were running in good running order and they were. And then we, um, so we, we put them in, we got paid to put them in running order. We shipped them down to Mexico. And they stayed down there for a year or two, to the best of my recollection. And came time, I guess the uh, uh, power shortage ended, and the government marred them back. So they, they shipped them back to us, and when they arrived back at our plant, they were in terrible condition. They apparently had failed to drain them properly, and they got caught in a freeze somewhere between Mexico and Baden and a lot of the uh, pipes were cracked and broken and valves were split and one thing and another. So then we got a contract from the federal government to put them back in first-class working order. The interesting part of it, and Harold ought to remember this, was that they, uh, the railroad was to blame for some of the damage. The Mexicans were to blame for some of the damage. Some of it was part of what you might call normal wear and tear. So the Treasury Department... By this time, I think they'd been transferred to the Navy, actually. I think the Navy owned them. So we were doing the work, and we had three different people trying to get out from paying us. So we'd sit there all day long and argue about whose responsibility it was. His his former boss was a guy named Severin Mers, and I think Mers and Burgess and I used to hold court. And we'd have a guy there from Mexico, a guy from the railroad, a guy from the Navy, and we'd say, which one of you guys (laughs) wants to pay this bill? And it was sort of funny, actually. But we did. We ended up getting paid.
0: Would you, would you like to add something? No. When was we two
3: minutes? Two, two minutes later. A later.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: all right. Now, when when you got these orders, well, you've got some more things to add. Right? That's okay. But when you got these orders, and you were converting, how did that work? I mean, you you. The, the, as far as equipment, and as far as people well, who drew up the plans, and people who designed these new— Well,
1: well bear in mind that the, uh, the plant was uh, ideally suited for this kind of work. I mean, we're uh, metal fabricators and car builders, so we're used to uh, assembling large uh, structures and doing a lot of uh, fabrication of metal, welding, riveting, and what have you. So the, the type of work was uh, not dissimilar, it was mm-hmm. certainly not identical. Uh, so it lent itself pretty well. And you got to remember also that in the car building business, no two jobs were ever alike. So we were always building one lot of cars, tear down, set up, build another lot of cars. Many of them were comparable, but it's, it's quite common to be uh, changing over from one job to another, retooling. Now this, the basic fabricating tools were generally the same. Sometimes you'd get into specialized uh, type of welding, such as aluminum welding, or we ended up later on getting into armor plate, which we didn't get into in World War II, but we did during the Korean War. We had to weld armor plate, which is a total, totally different technology, x-ray quality, by the way. Uh, so that, yeah, you're constantly changing, but that was really the nature of our business anyhow.
0: And they sent you everything that they told you, just what to do, and well, government,
1: in Well, mo- uh, most of this military equipment uh, was designed uh, by others. Mm-hmm. And we got a package of drawings um, from some—whoever engineered the thing in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that was true of the uh, Fairchild airplane that was designed by Fairchild. The uh, landing vehicles were designed mostly by Ingersoll, uh, product Ingersoll Products Division of Fort warner Corporation. Uh, the kitchen cars and ammunition cars and things like that were mostly designed by the, either the Transportation Corps or the Corps of Engineers. As always, you can be furnished to design, but we always have to make working drawings to let our shop know what to do and how to do it. So just because somebody else designed it doesn't mean we don't have any engineering to do. We, have a, we would have a lot, even though it might not be a complete uh, design from scratch.
0: Where did the electrical generating plants uh,
1: Russia comes from? I can't really tell you who designed those originally. Maybe this outfit that couldn't manufacture them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or there might have been an engineering firm involved in that. We were not involved in the original engineering, I know that. Uh, We probably were just involved in a lot of the manufacturing engineering uh, because each one had to be built for different equipment.
0: Did the tanks? the structure of your tanks change from the beginning to the end? You
1: know? Oh, yeah. The, the first ones were known as the LVT-2, but also called the Alligator Tank. It was small, relatively lightweight, no armor, no cover. The LVT-4s were bigger, heavier. They had a ramp uh, getting on and off, so you could run equipment in and out. Then in the Korean world, we built the LVT-P-6 which was totally armored, totally enclosed, had a big ramp. So they're all different models. And each model had its own set of uh, jigs, tools, fixtures, test equipment. They had to build a swimming pool to make sure they were waterproof. On the alligator tank, I know we took them out to, uh, uh, what's that lake out there, Uh, where we used to test them, uh, not Free Lake. uh. Anyhow, there's a little lake out there they had to be tested in a lake and and then on the uh on the uh alligator on the uh, lbt6s i worked out a deal with uh Missouri of cement we used to take them out to their property and run them up a 60 60 percent grade and a 40 percent side slope to make sure the tracks didn't come up and we built a swimming pool in the backyard and we'd put them in and put them in a pool and run them make sure they didn't leak
0: now, were the landing craft? You said landing craft. Were those the ones, that, the kind that were used on D-Day? And, and that?
1: These mostly were used by the Marines in the Pacific. They uh, CV. When you make an assault landing, they were you. You, you had what they call the uh, landing craft LCI, landing craft infantry. These were supposed to come up to the shore, drop the ramp, and soldiers would go ashore. Uh, when you start dropping them on the beaches, that's when they're easily shot at. So they found out that with this track vehicle that we had, which is amphibious, they could hit the beach and keep on going and get them up into some cover before they stopped. And I had Marines tell me that if it hadn't been for those landing crafts that we were building, uh, those Korean landings would have been a real disaster because they were armored and they went right inland rather than stopping at the beach where the Japs were all, and the Koreans were ready to shoot them down.
0: But so this would have been used on like water, not Guadalcanal, that was a little too early, but, but maybe Tarawa I can't, used.
1: I can't tell you exactly where they all they were used, but they were very, they were used. All, now, bear in mind, we weren't the only builders either. Mm-hmm. These were built, I think there were at least four other yards building them, so there were a great many thousands of them produced. Mm-hmm. We were just yeah. one, I know we built them, uh, Food and Machinery Corporation built them, Ingersoll Rand built them, Ingersoll Division of Borg-Warner built them, that's three. I think Pacific Car and Foundry was a supplier also. So our government had more than uh, a number of companies building the same type of vehicle.
0: I have two questions, and I, I want to hold one. But, but in, The fact that you built so much for the law, and it, it was so important, you know. How did how'd you feel? How did you feel here on the home
3: front? I, mean, I thought we
2: should know we could. Before, a lot
0: of people, employment, we to go on. It smells good. And
1: that, I mean... It's furnishing important equipment to our military at a time when uh, the United States was uh, in, in tough shape, not only in Europe, but in the, uh, uh, in the Far East. and. Uh, and we were damn glad to be busy, too. Don't forget, the 30s were a disaster for the United States in general, but St. Louis Car in particular. We were, we were so broke that the, uh, you know, we were one step away from, from bankruptcy. In fact, I think technically we were bankrupt, but nobody wanted to pull the string because there's no way to solve the problem.
0: All right, back to uh, making these, uh, uh, this, doing this production. Uh, you had inspectors. I guess did you you had inspectors from
3: That's the right?
0: So so how how did that go? You had army inspectors and and navy inspectors.
1: We every in our business every every customer always had his own inspection force in our mm-hmm. plant. There they were called customers resident inspection, and uh, we also had our own inspection. Mm-hmm which we we finally got sophisticated to call them our quality control department. And uh, bear in mind, it was our job to produce equipment uh, that would pass inspection. And uh, so we had to have our own people doing that, but then the customer had his people there to make sure we did Uh what we were supposed to be doing. Uh, It actually got to be a little bit funny on some of the uh, Navy jobs because Our customer was the United States Navy for the amphibian tanks. However, the user was the United States Marine Corps. The Marine Corps did not have their own purchasing and engineering service. They relied on the Navy. So the Navy guys would come along and say, no, don't listen to those Marines because we're your customers. And the Marines would come in and say, don't listen to those Navy guys because we're the guys that have to use these things, so do what we tell you. And we got caught in the middle more than once. But generally speaking, it worked very well. Okay.
0: Um, all right. Did you you had to hire new people, more people, when you got involved in the war effort? And um, did you hire? You start hiring women.
1: Great many. The, uh, the had I you
0: d- had women before? Y-
1: yes, but not too not too many women in the uh, manufacturing end. A few, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, but. Uh, as I, especially in the aircraft, I got into a lot of women because the work is lighter. Uh, and Harold might be able to tell you better than I, but when I left, I would say we were running employment of maybe three or four hundred people in the plant. By the time the peak of the war got, we were over 2,000, uh, something over 2,000. So that'll give you some idea of how, how it had to grow. And we got it up to where we had about two and a half shifts which we never had, you know, in peacetime, but those were rough numbers. So, yes, we hired hundreds and hundreds Hundreds of people, and And there were a great many women. I can't give you percentages. I don't think anybody worried about it in those days, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you hired anybody that you could find that could could do the work. There was a shortage of skilled labor. Uh
0: And you hired uh, Negroes. Oh, yes. A
1: lot of blacks and a lot of females.
0: And did, did everybody work in the same plant?
1: Yeah, we only mm. had one plant.
0: Well, uh, because in some instances they had a separate plant for the Negroes, and Not they had really. separate everything, and then—or they had a separate line? No. Or no. Ours, ours
1: was fully integrated. Now— Had you
0: had, had any Negro people before? Oh, yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. We've always had black uh, employees. but. Uh,
0: I'm using in, the in term Negro because
1: that's what it was in well, the Well, in 40s. those days, they were known as, as Negroes, and that was a, a, a proper term. Later on, they preferred to be called blacks, and now they want to be called Afro americans which is okay with me. But, uh, yes, the answer is we've always had uh, a lot of non-white employees. Uh, in certain departments, there are more than others. Uh, for, for example, uh, in, in the Common Labor Department, where they did uh, less skilled work, there'd be more than there would be in a in the welder group for example which was relatively high skilled mm-hmm. on the machine shop.
0: But you, you had them on a production line or was it just janitorial? Oh
1: no, definitely both. Okay. Uh, definitely in production.
0: Um, was there some reason where they weren't on the high, more highly skilled line?
1: Oh some were but in those days particularly there weren't as many uh, skilled uh, mechanics am, among the uh, American Negroes, as there are today, and we trained a lot of people. We had to train You had to take unskilled people and, and teach them what to do.
0: Um, and I guess you lost a lot of people to service.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: So, did you have a high turnover, or were, did you pretty I much
3: get more than anybody else?
1: Yeah.
0: but I mean, you, as people got older, they went into the or, or are they I, I
1: really don't. I, there's mm-hmm. always a certain amount of turnover, mm-hmm. and I'm sure during the war it was more of it because we had more employees, mm-hmm. you but know, just numerically. Now, as a percentage, you know, it's hard to say. But did
0: everybody eat together? Mm-hmm. Well,
1: everybody ate together except we didn't have a cafeteria, there. so we didn't have centralized eating. Everybody brought their lunch and mm-hmm. sat on the floor yeah, and yeah, ate floor. it, or else they went out to some little restaurant on in Maiden mm-hmm. or something like that. One of the things we were lucky enough to avoid was the company cafeteria, that mm-hmm. every every businessman I know of that ever had them had nothing the but trouble.
2: up to
3: pick people up, bring them in by the truckload.
0: They would go out? The trucks would go out and bring people in? Yeah, in the mornings. Oh. Go, you mean?
1: At night. Tra- transportation. For transportation? Yeah. I yeah. remember that. Yeah, they I had, don't remember that, too. Much.
0: They had a regular line where... Well, we'd find out where they lived, and we'd
3: say, Truck
0: to oh, for because of gas rationing yeah, or not, not owning a car. Not owning a car. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. So did you have um? Did you have to have new regulations or new codes for production or codes for clothing or anything like that?
1: Not that I'm aware of. I mean, uh, the the type of work, the metal fabrication, the assembly. It was pretty much what we've always done, so I don't think there were mm-hmm. many changes in that respect.
0: How mm-hmm. oh, about security? Security
1: was tightened. We had our own guard force. We always did have a guard force, mm-hmm. but there was a lot more of it, and I'm, I know they went into uh, badges with photographs and stuff like that that we never bothered with before, so the answer is yes. Yeah.
0: but you never had any incidents or anything? If there's anything that you want to put in on anything I'm talking about, please feel free. Um, All right. Morale. Uh, did people, do you feel, Harold, you were here, do you feel that people just had a job, or do you feel that they really felt that they were doing something um, special? I
3: general opinion. Anybody want to do something. But I
0: Okay, uh, didn't did did they have uh, did Mr. Meisner speak over the loudspeaker and uh, did they have anybody who came and and gave little speeches? Well, the bond issue.
3: We brought uh, the Hollywood characters out, selling bonds.
0: huh. And you used to have those. Yeah. yeah. Did you have blood drives at the yes. um, I understand that Mr. McDonald. At McDonnell Aircraft, um, it's kind of in a in a funny story type of thing that he the the Red Cross went out and wanted to uh, have a blood drive, and he said that that was fine. After hours, they could have it on the parking lot. So the man from the Red Cross that was telling this said that each time they'd go out, he was so polite, and they think this time we're going to get it, <laughs> and they never did have it during working hours. So. How did, how did Jews go? Was it, was it, could they have it during working hours or was it after hours? I
1: can't remember that. Well, I, I remember having blood drives after I came back. This is, this is post World War II, and we definitely uh, set them up and we let them come during the day. During the day? And I still remember that we put them down in our garage. Yeah. Our and yeah, and uh, so we, you know, let them come off, uh-huh. off the line for a half hour, so and I, I did it myself
0: um, could, could you think of what was the, the big difference between doing the war work and in any part of it whether it was uh, something special you were doing or what made did the war years make a, a difference in any way besides building back up your
1: economy yeah they made a lot of difference for one thing we made some money for a change that's what I meant
0: <laughs> and uh,
1: <laughs> which we hadn't been doing during the 30s and so it was highly profitable as I remember you, you correct me Harold if I'm wrong but as I recall the our total volume for World War two now that would be roughly between about uh, probably 42 to 46 was something like a hundred million dollars and that was a, a, lot, of, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of work. Uh, I would say the year I left, maybe in 39 or 40, if we did 10 million in that year, that would be a lot. You know, so we went from uh, now 100 million over a few years averaged out maybe to 25 or 30 million a year, but, but that's still uh, triple or quadruple uh, a pre-war uh, year as far as volume is concerned in round numbers. But not only that, uh, my father uh, pulled a very interesting deal. He read in the paper one day that the old Curtis Wright plant at Lambert Field was going to be demolished in order to build what is now part of McDonnell Douglas, a larger plant, because the, the type of airplane that Curtis Wright was building didn't need big, tall buildings. And then once they were scheduled to build, which I think was the C-47 needed more height, so the government's solution was tear that plant down. We'll build a bigger plant, which they did. But my father read in the paper that this plant was going to be scrapped, so he went out early in the morning, got a hold of the contractor that had the contract, and bought his contract. My recollection is that he paid him five or six thousand dollars for the contract which then obligated him, the St. Louis Car Company, to dismantle the old Curtis Wright plant. So, he got a bunch of contractors that he knew together and lined up a bunch of flat cars, and I think that's the Wabash that serves that area, and these buildings, three of them, plus the power plant, so they really four different buildings, were taken down piece by piece, marked, loaded on flat cars hauled to 8,000 North Broadway, which was our address in those days, and re-erected on our land. And that increased the uh, capacity for space of St. Louis Car by about 30 or 35 percent. That also gave us a place to build those airplanes that I told you about. You see, we we had a little small section of our car building plant called the Aircraft Department. but It was more for one plane at, at a time rather than a production line. So in order to qualify for big production we needed big production space so that's how my father got it not only that because it was a wartime deal it was uh, you got i think it was a five-year write-off uh, on the cost of the investment so at the end of five years we'd written the whole thing off and further another stroke of genius was that in those days, you could not have built such a building because everything was rationed, and you had to have certificate of necessity and terms like that in order to get steel and materials. And well, So you didn't have to do that because it was all secondhand material. So it was a bold but a very brilliant transaction. And uh, you said what effect it had on the company. Well, mm. it increased our space by 30%. And at the end of five years, it hadn't cost us a dime.
0: He sounds like quite a man. He was a hell of a man. Tell me
1: about him. <laughs> well, <laughs> because
0: I, he was—tell me about his
1: involvement in the community as far as the world. Well, he, uh, he uh, was a member of the city police board during the 40s, when times were really very difficult, race riots and what have you. Al Kaufman, the mayor of the city, asked him to form the Mayor's Race Relations Commission. He not only organized it and chaired it, but ran it during the times when we're having race riots and threats of race riots all over town. Uh, He had one secretary that ran the office down in City Hall and he did everything else and he had a blue ribbon committee that he put together and they kept the lid on pretty well. The biggest single thing that I think he did, and this has been written up was he got the downtown department stores to agree to serve black people. They would sell them anything they had in the store, including a mink coat, but no black person could buy so much as a hot dog at Famous Sticks or Jackets or Scruggs, Vandivert, and Barney. What
0: year are you talking about?
1: I'm talking about the 40s. And uh, my father got... uh, Frank Mayfield was the head of Scruggs Manor and Barney and he was the one that my dad convinced to make a breakthrough and he opened up the basement cafeteria of Scruggs for serving blacks. Soon after that, Sticks opened up one lunch counter and Famous opened up a lunch counter. Now, of course, you could eat in any of their Mm -hmm. fancy dining rooms, but in those days they couldn't eat any place. That's
2: right. And Dad's
1: race relations commission did that. He went to meetings at the various churches. And you you remember they had a a nasty situation with the swimming pools out in Fairgrounds Park. He was involved in all that. So he did a lot. And he did many other civic activities, too. He was president of sheriff of the congregation for 19 years. He was president of the Suit for the Deaf for 19 years. Built the research building. He was on the bank board over at the Stockyards Bank. He uh, did many, many things uh, in this community for the welfare of others. He was dedicated in that way.
0: Um, When I mentioned to a few people what I was doing today, and I mentioned your name, they would say, he's really a nice man. Everybody did. That's nice to hear. That's
1: nice to hear. The
0: apple doesn't fall far from the tree. All right. You you spoke of the race, some of the um, strikes or... Things that happened, uh, and in '44 there were strikes. Uh, I think that um, you had one, a couple at your plant.
1: I can't give you a, uh, a litany on that. I it's read,
0: I read in the in the book.
1: Yeah, well, and, it's and all it says, it's all been it documented. Says, I remember very well the the, the day the Steelworkers Organized Committee pulled the first strike, because I was there. It was during the summer, and I was working. And all the employees walked out, and I walked out with them. And we all walked across the street to an empty lot where the the uh, business they didn't call him business agent in those days. He was a, a communist organizer for the Steel Workers Organizing Committee. Got up and blasted my father and the whole company. I'm standing there in the in the crowd with all the other workmen, listening to this guy blast us. And that's when they first organized the plant is back in. About 36 or seven, And of course, we then had the steel workers as our union, mm-hmm. and it was a struggle from that day on. Every time a uh, new contract would come up, I wouldn't say every time we'd have a strike, but we had our share of them.
0: Yeah. And um, but I understand during the war, and particularly in 44, it said that um, uh, that they were, that it had something to do with... Uh, Discrimination, but it really wasn't. Um, it really it really hadn't been. They had an employment discrimination and a grievance procedure, and the men were not ready to recognize Roosevelt's executive order to prohibit uh, discrimination. Well, there's, there's probably
1: a little truth in that because mm-hmm. my father, I don't think I was in those negotiations, insisted that we have a non discrimination clause in the contract. And Such a clause was written and was included, and at some point in time, we got a letter of commendation from somebody for being pioneers for having a a union agreement that said there shall be no discrimination for the race, creed, color, Mm -hmm. national origin, and so forth. It
0: it said that it was very quickly settled.
1: Yeah. I don't remember whether that was a strike issue or not, but Uh I do remember that it was included in the contract, and I remember that it was a uh, pioneering piece of phraseology.
0: And that, I think, uh, there was a 12-day strike in 44. Was a dispute over peace work? <laughs> 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 there was
1: always a dispute yeah. over peace work. That's, oh, Yeah. That's, that's yeah. nothing new.
0: Did, did, did the labor problems dissipate at all because of the war effort? Did it make it less? Were people more willing to work together? Or as long as you paid them.
1: My recollection is it was worse during the war, when I came back in 40, late 45 and 46, I, we had a lousy history of, of, of uh, uh, labor relations. They used to refer to them as walkie-talkies, and so they'd walk first and talk afterwards. And I had my share of that, too. I had, uh, you, remember when, you remember when we had the, uh, I was on the tank job, all the welders in the, uh, and the steel shed all walked out one day, except the president of the union, Cowboy Bardos. he's the only one that stayed on the job. And about 15 of them walked out, we fired them all, and uh, we had uh, all kinds of arbitrations that went on and on and on. So, it, it, we eventually got it calmed down. We did some other things, too. We, uh, over, really over my father's objection, we, uh, we started a uh, joint labor management uh, job evaluation and then we had a joint labor management time study group, and my father thought that was really letting the fox into the hen house. <laughs> but it, it kind of helped. Mm-hmm. And uh, gradually it worked out. I believe we had our share of sit-downs and walk-outs and piecework arguments went on all the time.
0: Okay. Um, where did the, uh, the word quality shops come from? Does I
1: can't answer that. It's a very, very old uh, term that I guess my father invented, mm-hmm. but it, it predates my service. We used to run it on every ad, quality shops.
0: Well, what what does anybody have to offer about the war years that, that I might, you might want people to know that uh, we haven't touched on yet?
1: Well, the one thing that worries me, uh, after the war, they had considerable uh, federal mobilization planning, and we were Scheduled to do all kinds of things in the event of the next major war uh, in line with what we had done before. So we, had, we were scheduled on this planning to do so many things that if we'd been called upon to do them all at the same time, I don't know how we'd have done them. What worries me now is who's around to do that kind of work if we ever have another major war? Uh, and everybody says, well, you don't need that kind of equipment anymore, and I don't think that's true. We still need tanks and troop carriers and uh, troop trains and things of that sort. And many, not just our companies, but many companies like ours are no longer in business. And uh, fighting wars is not strictly all tech, where you push a button and a rocket goes off. Allow it of that too, that we aren't in and wouldn't be in. But the common, ordinary metal fabrication and assembly of, of tough stuff to worries me, uh, and I worry that our industrial base is not equipped to do another, um, to back up a, uh, a major uh, war, if we ever had one.
0: Do other people, do you think, feel the way you do? Oh, I
1: don't think there's any question about it. You read, read enough journals, I think you'll find mm-hmm. a lot of people are just referred to as the industrial base, mm-hmm. and uh, it's shrinking, and it's going sh- it's shrinking more now, because now that Russia's out of, everybody says, "Oh my gosh, you know we don't have any, any an enemy anymore. We don't need all this military stuff. We don't need these companies anymore." And McDonald's is threatened with laying off 40,000 people and all that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't cut back. Of course we should, but I worry about maintaining a a base uh, that can be uh, utilized when we need it.
0: It's a good worry. We've been here before, oh, I yeah. believe, where then we. How? let go. And 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 you can't
1: create it overnight. No.
0: Um all right, let's (laughs) um, tell me about the training. You did use the trade schools. Oh, we
1: we used to uh, send people down to the trade schools and there and there were a lot of private schools were created, you know, welding schools and especially I remember in that Korean war we had a terrible time getting welders to do our armor plate welding. Even good welders couldn't mm-hmm. pass our test.
0: Was it But this was, um, we need to keep this within World War II? Well, it, same thing with World War II. There was War something II. about something called training within industry. We did. Um, we did a lot Adley of training. at and Rankin and Jefferson College, uh, which was at the Y, I believe, in St. Louis and Washington U and Booker T. Washington Tech School. Uh,
1: we used every technique in the book to uh, find qualified people. Uh, and many of them would come in with some qualification and, and, and they would be training on the job. Mm-hmm. so that was a problem for everybody though
0: So... but you did use those other people. Well
1: yeah, and we had our own welding school
0: did, did, oh you did I, and did you did you find that um I don't know in one book I was reading St Louis World War II, It was by this Betty Burnett you you said you bought it because yeah, I've got the that name book right. Um, that production, you know, people kind of didn't go to work. Uh, maybe in '43, uh, and they had to, they had to try and get people to morale was down. Okay, so they had to try and get people to come to work. Did you find that 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 was true? Where, where people just weren't as productive as they once had been, and then it would sort of go and ebb and flow back, and, and then it would build up again.
1: I really can't comment on that. I don't really know. You know, in this kind of a business, uh, getting qualified people to work hard is always a problem. Always a problem. Turnover is always a problem. Uh, the guy you really need is the guy that always leaves, and the guy you really don't, would like to get rid of, you can't get rid of. <laughs> well, so, you know, that's a constant problem. They said they got tired
0: of, you know, I got tired of the war, and, and uh, it was really more that. Um, well, if you, I really appre- appreciate very much your time. Uh, is there well, it's fun. What? I love to talk about it. <laughs> is there anything that uh, you would like to comment on?
1: I can't think of anything else, but we, St. Louis Carr had a very proud history. I'm just sorry it doesn't exist today, but uh, time marches on.
0: sounds like it was. A very important part of what made us win the war. So to you, Harold, who was on the home front, uh, m- much thanks, and to you who seem to be everywhere, much thanks.
1: Well, glad to do it.
0: Thank you for today. You mentioned earlier in this tape that you had trained black troops, um, infantry troops. Yeah. Uh, explain. Uh, uh, Troops were segregated at that time. Oh, very
1: definitely. My, uh, I mentioned that I got a uh, commission as a second lieutenant in the infantry from Fort Benning, mm-hmm. Georgia, and my first assignment was to Fort McClellan, Alabama, where I became a uh, company officer, Company B, of the 1st Regiment. The, I think we had eight regiments all together in this, it was called a BIRTC branch immaterial replacement training center. The point being we weren't training infantry or artillery or armor or cavalry. We are just training basic soldiers. The branch was immaterial. This was their basic training. The first regiment was all black. The other, and I think there were six or seven others, were all white. And I got assigned to the black regiment. And I started out as a second lieutenant in Company B. What year? Well, that would have been uh, 1942.
0: I read in the paper the other evening that there there was a story about somebody that's from St. Louis, uh, Mr. D-U-B-O-S-E, who uh, offered to be part of a, a black infantry because most Blacks at that time were only in the service, the, you know, like a clerk or, mm-hmm. or the food, or so how I mean, this is new.
1: Well, these, the, the mission of the BIRTC was to take uh, young men that have been drafted and give them their basic military training. At that point in time, nobody was concerned about whether there would be a truck driver or an infantryman or an airplane pilot or what.
0: So you weren't training them to fight? Uh,
1: We were training them how to be a soldier, know how to wear a uniform, uh, how to salute, how to march.
0: But they didn't go out on the rifle, right? Oh, yes. Oh,
1: they did. They had to learn to shoot, and they had to learn to hike, and they had to learn to yeah, learn everything you need to be a soldier.
0: Same basic training that you were giving the others?
1: everybody got the same training. Okay. No, there's no difference. That's why branch and material, uh, we weren't training for any particular branch. When they left us, then they would go to a unit or a division. It might be a quartermaster division or an infantry division or a artillery unit or a coast guard, not coast guard, that's another branch of service. But So after they left us, they would get, specific skills uh, in the military, but uh, I served as a company officer for a relatively short time, and then I became a battalion uh, adjutant, and then I became a regimental adjutant. And in our regiment, we had five battalions, and we had roughly a thousand men in each battalion. That would be 5,000 troops.
0: But you're not talking about just. Black. Just
1: I'm talking all black. All this black. This is the 1st Regiment. Okay. There are more regiments on the post That's what we Fort them, but I'm talking about the 1st Regiment.
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh... What was the highest rank of the black, any black person
1: down there? The highest rank were the chaplains. They were captains. We had two black chaplains. Everybody, er, all the other officers were white, and the uh, non-commissioned officers were all black. The non-commissioned officers were the original cadre that started it were all uh, regular Army Blacks from Fort Huachuca, Arizona, mm-hmm. and they were a very proud bunch, and they're very good soldiers. And uh, I was there for 14 months when I ended up as the regimental adjutant and a captain. The rule was you couldn't stay there more than a year because it was it was not only a replacement training center for soldiers, it was also a— replacement pool for officers. So officers would be assigned there until they were needed at some division or some unit and as an adjutant my job was to fill those, we called them requisitions. Every morning they, we'd get a requisition, have a meeting of the, all the adjutants, we'd tell them how many officers are needed, where, we go back to our unit, and say okay I've got to fulfill this requisition, we'd ship out the officers too. But finally it came my turn to be shipped out and I I shipped myself out, mm-hmm. but I I couldn't find anybody to take my place for a while. That's why I ended up 14 months instead of 12 months.
0: Why couldn't? Was it difficult? Well, being me?
1: a regimental adjutant is rather special. Specific. In that particular skill. area, that
0: was unusual. I mean, this was something that uh, takes a
1: while to learn how to be a regimental adjutant, well, especially with a unit that big. Yes, but
0: I'm talking about the fact that there were black troops or colored troops.